one of the things that has come out very strongly in our Sabbath school lessons through this particular quarter is the whole matter of obedience. We have seen how the children of Israel paid for their disobedience in the various things that happened to them down through the whole course of their history. And the matter of obedience to the divine word is something that is key right through the scriptures. The Bible starts out with this matter of obedience and it ends with the same kind of thought. We read early in Genesis that the Lord commanded Adam. And the question that comes immediately after man's fall is there in Genesis chapter 3 verse 11. Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? So a very early example then of a call to obedience and disobedience that had taken place. And we know of course the consequences of that not only for Adam but for the whole of humankind. Andrew Murray, a Bible commentator, has this to say about these texts. He says, Note how obedience to the command is the one virtue of paradise, the one condition of man's abiding there, the one thing that his creator asks of him. Nothing is said of faith, or humility, or love. Obedience includes all. As supreme as is the claim and authority of God is the demand for obedience as the one thing to decide his destiny. In the life of man to obey is the one thing needful. So it stresses the importance then of this one particular quality trait. God is not being arbitrary in the sense that he sets out to punish those who step out of line. What he is saying is, because we are told that man was created in his image in the garden, if you want to be like me, God says, these are the sort of characteristics you must display. And so all through scripture we see a call to come back to those characteristics. And sadly all through scripture we see those who fail to do that. And we see that consequences happen as a result. And the force of this demand is not diminished with the passing of time. For we read in Revelation chapter 22 verse 14. Blessed are they that do his commandments. Why? That they might have right to the tree of life. And may enter in through the gates of the city. So we start out with obedience. We end with obedience. God's call is exactly the same all the way through. But what exactly do we mean by obedience? You might think that that's fairly obvious. But in fact, there are three different types of obedience. The first of these is that you obey because you have to. That you do it out of fear or obligation. You're told to do something. You don't want the consequences. So you do it with some kind of resentment inside of you, but you do it anyway. And that's hardly obedience in the real sense of the word. The second type of obedience is that you obey for the gain you expect to get out of it. Witness the obedience of children just before their birthdays perhaps and just before Christmas. When they are expecting that something will happen as a result of their being good. And then thirdly you obey because you love and trust the person who asks you to do something. You don't need to question it. 
You don't need to weigh up whether there are going to be consequences. You don't need to weigh up whether there are going to be benefits. Just simply because that person asked you to do it and your love for them, you do it. You're obedient. And we find an example of obeying because you have to in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Here we have an account of the Lord asking Saul through Samuel to do something for him. And Saul was told to destroy the Amalekites. And this account ends by showing how finally Saul was disobedient to God's request and the punishment for his disobedience. So let's just read together 1 Samuel chapter 15. <clears throat> Samuel also said unto Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint thee to be king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore hearken thou unto me, unto the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I remember that which Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him in the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and smite Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, camel and ass. And Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Talakim, two hundred thousand footmen and ten thousand men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and laid wait in the valley. And Saul said unto the Kenites, who were living there among them, Go, depart, get you down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For ye showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul smote the Amalekites from Havilah, until there comest to Shur that is over against Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatlings, and of the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them, but everything that was vile and refuge, that they destroyed utterly. Then came the word of the Lord unto Samuel, saying, It repenteth me that I have set up Saul to be king, for he has turned back from following me, and hath not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried unto the Lord all night. And when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place, and is gone about, and passed on and gone down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandments of the Lord. And Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleating of the sheep in mine ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. And Samuel said unto Saul, Stay, and I will tell you what the Lord hath said unto me this night. And he said unto him, Say on. And Samuel said, When there was little in thine own sight, wast thou not made the head of the tribe of Israel, and the Lord anointed thee king over Israel? And the Lord sent thee on a journey, and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, 
but didst fly upon the spoil and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore I pray thee, pardon my sin and turn again with me, that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord hath rejected thee from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned about to go away, he laid hold upon the skirt of his mantle, and it rent. And Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and turn again with me, that I may worship the Lord thy God. So Samuel turned again after Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then said Samuel, Bring ye hither to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came unto him delicately. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As thy sword hath made women childless, so shall thy mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. A terrible ending to the story. All as a result of the disobedience of the one person. But notice how Paul, how, sorry, how Saul tried to justify his disobedience. First he claims that he was in fact obedient. And then of course when he's cornered, the benefits to God of his disobedience. Oh look, all these extra animals for sacrifice in the sanctuary. And then finally of course when he sees that that's not going to work. It was not really him that was disobedient. It was the people. But as we see, as a result, God withdrew the anointing of his spirit from Saul, who remained king in name only from that time. And of course we see, as Samuel said, that God is no respecter of persons, whether king or commoner. When he asks for obedience, he expects obedience. An example of obedience for gain is found in Acts chapter 4. We turn across now to the New Testament. <coughs> in Acts chapter 4.
and reading from verse 31. <coughs> it's talking about the early Christian believers and the fact that they have uh, assembled themselves together as they did to pray and to uh, reflect on spiritual matters. It says, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joses, who by the apostles were surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of Consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession, and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost, and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much? And she said, Yeah, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carried her forth and buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. So here we read the actions of Ananias and Sapphira, a story to you, I'm sure. But the story also ends with a punishment for disobedience. The Holy Spirit had worked mightily, we read, upon the hearts of the Christian group who were assembled together. And the people respond by selling possessions and giving all to support the gospel work. And verse 33 of chapter 4 says that great grace or power was upon them all. And there's no reason to suppose that Ananias and Sapphira are not included in that statement. They were also moved to sell their possessions. But in between receiving the call and receiving the money, they had a change of heart and disobeyed the inner call. Perhaps the sale realized more than they could have hoped for. They might have thought they were only going to get a certain amount and they wouldn't miss that too much and that would be all right, that could go to this 
pot of uh, cash that was needed by the disciples. But whatever their reason, they were disobedient to the Spirit's command to their hearts. And they thought only of their gain. They thought what they could do with the residue of the monies that came to them. And of course, we see their punishment for their disobedience. But the third and finest example of obedience is the life, of course, of Jesus Christ, our Saviour. His whole life was one of total obedience. Philippians chapter 2 verse 8 tells us that Christ humbled himself and was obedient unto death. And we read how his obedience affects us over there in Hebrews. Go across to Hebrews chapter 5 and in verses 8 and 9. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. So he was obedient unto death so that you and I might have that strength to be obedient to him. So obedience is intimately connected with law. Not legalism, and I think that's where we so often make a confusion, but law. And one popular writer has this to say about law. If ever a generation was two-faced on a subject, it's the present one regarding law. Technologically, men worship at its scientific shrine, but morally, law is denied and ridiculed. Yet to speak of law is but to speak of limits. And who is there among us who is not forced hourly to acknowledge the fact of limits? Dare the surgeon, the artist, the musician, the electrician, the atomic scientist, the housewife, or even the schoolboy ignore the limits of law. Can one play any game without laws, let alone the game of life in which all are forced to participate? Of course we work within parameters. We work within the constraints of natural laws, if you like. Not legalism, but law. And not only did Jesus live a life of obedience, and how could we establish that if there were no law to compare his life to? But he continually pointed out that we should obey the law, which is often throughout scriptures equated with his word. For example, in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, where Jesus says to the people, Why call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? And Jesus takes this rebuke further when he contrasts the way the Pharisees kept the law and the way Christians should keep it. He says, for example, in Matthew chapter 5, repeated in uh, verse 21 and 22, You have heard how it was said of them in old time, but I say unto you. Oh, don't worry about what they said. Don't worry about how they interpreted it. The obedience that you're called to is obedience to Jesus Christ. And Jesus proclaims the bankruptcy of man to produce the kind of obedience that God requires. And legalism is no substitute 
he demands obedience. He enters our life and gives us that ability to be obedient. We read, for example, in Jeremiah, that he gives us a new heart on which the commandments are engraved. That's Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. Loving obedience is the realization and evidence of our true relationship to God. If we love him, we do what? We keep his commandments. And nowhere is this made more clear than in the book Deuteronomy, the contents of which can best be summarized using words found in its own pages. A blessing if you obey. Deuteronomy comes from a Latin title meaning second law. And the book has more to say about obedience than any other book in the whole Bible. Although Paul takes up this theme time and again in his writings. Because the people always need to be called back to obedience. We've already noted Adam's call to obedience. Noah's obedience is mentioned four times in Genesis chapter 6 and 7. Abraham, the father of the Jewish race, is described in Hebrews as one who by faith did what? Obeyed. Jeremiah continually called the people to obedience, all to no avail. We could go on adding to that list. We could go through all the books of the Bible and we would see how time and time and time again the people were called back to obedience. And in the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount takes up the same theme by showing how heart obedience is necessary to fulfill the spiritual requirements of God's law. And from Bible study, we understand that God will have a remnant who will be commandment keepers. A modern religious writer, B. Davy Napier, comments, Because Christianity emerged only after a severe tussle with those who would make a bit of religion of extreme legalism, we who stand in that faith and who are informed of that early struggle are disposed to discount sometimes unthinkingly, the place of law not only in the life of faith, but in the totality of life. And we would do well to reflect that the law of Moses, the kind of law we find in Deuteronomy, is a far cry from the extreme legalistic mentality against which Christianity in its first years was forced to fight. We do well to understand the nature of that law. Keep it in your mind, separated from legalism. See that there are limits, that there are settings between which God is trying to guide you and to work. So clearly the third form of obedience is the only one that carries weight. In Romans chapter 5 verse 19 we read, For by one man's disobedience many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one, shall many be made righteous. Obedience is therefore founded on the love principle. Christ didn't come to save us through fear. He wasn't threatened by God that if he didn't do something about it, there'd be problems. Or through expectation of reward. But because he loved us sufficiently, abundantly, to die for us. Remember that? God so loved that he sent. And remember, Christ was obedient unto death. 
Every command of God is an evidence of his loving interest in us. Obedience was the test at the beginning of human history. Obedience has always been the test. The book of Revelation predicts that the earth's last grand conflict will center around obedience to the law of God. Not in legalistic observance, but in loving response to God's love. When our names, metaphorically as it were, are called, the only question that will be asked is, does the life record show that this person has fled to Christ and in gratitude for his salvation tried to give him wholehearted, loving obedience? This is not a court decision. There's not a jury that sits and says that. It is one that you and I make for ourselves. We choose whether we're going to be in heaven with Jesus our Saviour. All who come unto me, he says, I will in no wise cast out. So the decision is not made by others and you'll be able to look at it and say, oh, that's unfair. No, the decision is made by you. Here, now. Now is the hour of salvation, as scripture reiterates. If we were judge and jury asking ourselves this question, how would we answer it? Do we fear the consequences? Do we obey because we want a reward? Or do we genuinely love and trust him who is the creator, sustainer and redeemer of life? In other words, are we obedient for the sake of being obedient? You are the one that decides your eternal destiny. So reflect deeply on your response, I pray, this morning. Amen.